Shrinkwrap Radio number 864, interview with celebrated animal ecologist, animal rights activist, and documentarian Carl Amon. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Hi, Dr. Dave here. At the end of the last episode, I mistakenly said that we would be skipping a week because I didn't have anybody scheduled. However, I was forgetting that my colleague Izzy had uh, got me ahead with some files that she sent me. And so, in fact, we do have something this week. Thanks to my London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, as she steps in to conduct yet another interview. I really treasure Izzy, and I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I would not have known about. And you'll see that illustrated right now with her latest find. Hi, this is Izzy Clark. And once again, I'm pushing the boundaries a little with this interviewee. Carl Amann makes investigative documentaries to expose wildlife trafficking, poaching and other forms of brutal exploitation of the planet's most iconic species. So a very different guest. I wanted to talk to him because I was in awe of someone who could commit themselves so fully to work that's disturbing, depressing and often demoralising. Carl bears witness to unconscionable cruelty and is often given little respect or thanks by those who are supposed to be upholding the laws that are intended to prevent wildlife trafficking. I wanted to understand the seeds of his resilience and the costs of bearing witness. Now, here's the interview. Carl Mann, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thanks for having me. Now, you're a very different interviewee for this podcast, an investigative documentary maker um, who's working in exposing um, wild, wild animal trafficking rather than being a psychologist or a counsellor or a coach, um, which many of our interviewees are. But I wanted to talk to you because I think you demonstrate a certain kind of psychological resilience that um, that I think is is perhaps quite rare and must also be quite challenging. And um, and also to talk to you about the price of witnessing the things that that you witness. 
So first, could you tell us your story? Because you didn't start off as an environmentalist. I, I believe that you studied economics initially. Yeah, at the very beginning, it was economics in Switzerland. And then I moved to Cornell in the US, where I went into hotel management, graduated, came out to Africa to work for Intercontinental. And then living in Africa, obviously, was exposed to wildlife issues, tourism, and slowly got into it and then got full time into it a little bit later in my life. So you weren't originally a photographer. Had you always had an interest in photography? Not really, no. I mean, as I said, it's, I had an interest after first visiting Africa and Kenya to really experience the wilderness, which was still there and could be enjoyed. I mean, like a lot of people my age I, or in, in our part of Europe, we had seen uh, Serengeti Shall Not Die, which was a famous film at the time done by Chimek exposing what, you know, what life on an African savanna plain looks like. And I'd seen that and I always had a yankering for, for you know, experiencing something similar. So my wife and I did two years in the Masai Mara uh, as a honeymoon, essentially camping out, uh, but having an official accreditation to do so, uh, to do also some research work. But during that time, there were a lot of, I mean, everybody else living there, every expat was into photography, be balloon pilots or lodge camp managers. And so everybody talked about F-stops and cameras and lenses and so on. So that's how we got into it. And before I sort of go on specifically into that, I saw on your CV that you you were also involved in organising the the famous boxing bout between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, the Rumble in the Jungle. I, how did that come about? I, that just struck me because allegedly my mother met Muhammad Ali on an aeroplane once, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I watched the the wonderful film that was made about that that bout. It's just incredible, and I, I'm sure that people would be interested. Yeah, but I said it's almost a book or a 90 minutes documentary I could, you know, make out of the material and the memories I have out of that time. But it was, I worked with Intercontinental and uh, Intercontinental Hotels for the Africa Division based in Nairobi. They were asked to help organize this fight. And they said, bloody hell, this is too risky. This is uh, Mobutu Sese Seko. Uh, you know, this is typical African kind of uh, potential shamble scenario. We can't involve, get directly involved, but we loaned the government a few of our experts to help them out. So I was assigned to the Congo government uh, to help out organizing it. So I ended up essentially running the training camp out at Insele, where the training took place. And I got to know guys quite well and then the fight got postponed because Foreman got cut over the eye so that then meant uh, uh, meant several week postponement so that was pretty stressful for them because they hadn't planned on hanging around that long they wanted to leave but Mobutu wouldn't let them leave he had already paid them millions of dollars so so anyway <laughs> they, you know I got to know them even better during that time and yeah so uh, you know I was sitting up in on ringside when the fight happened and uh and had the first hand experience and I'm surprised people still talk about it today, you know, and I have somewhere in my place in Seychelles I have a poster hanging up 
uh, with pictures of myself and Ali and so on. And uh, a German visitor looked at it the other day and said, oh, you were there. I said, yeah, yeah. And then he went on and he knew every round, every fight, every <laughs> everything. And I said, bloody hell, you know more about, you know, what happened than, than I do when I was there, you know. But anyway, so it's interesting that it's still talked about and still, you know, an issue and still uh, something people remember, you know. What a life. What a life you've lived. Um, but anyway, the, it's it's the it's the animals that we're, we're really okay. focusing on, of course. And um, uh, tell me about your work now. Um, um, and uh, how long you've been doing the investigative documentary making? Okay, I mean, I started in, I mean, I did the photography to start off mm -hmm. with, resulting in quite a few coffee table type of books, started seeing things again in the Congo, which shocked me and I found kind of depressing, decided, look, is this just confined to the Congo? In this case, we were going up the Congo River. Uh, on one of these big, huge barges with thousands of people on board and lots of wildlife carcasses, decided to investigate that component, finding out that it was widespread throughout Central Africa, this bushmeat trade, uh, decided to document that, got very little attention to start off with, and was had, had my credibility questioned, but then the New York Times magazine picked it up, and then from then on, everybody bought in on it and accepted that it probably was an issue. And so uh, we then turned it into a book, in you know, a coffee table type of book, just to hand out to members of parliament and so on in, in the various countries to educate, to create awareness. And uh, yeah, that's how it all started. And from there, people asked me to accompany them on film shoot to, to show them what was going on on the ground. So I traveled mostly with German TV teams, but also with US teams, with uh, with CNN and so on. But then I, you know, later on, not that, you know, about 10 years ago, I decided, okay, I wanted to go more in depth than these half hour pieces, which can be produced in a week in the field. And I started spending serious time on doing documentary. And I believe you saw the one on the Tiger Mafia, which went yeah. out on Amazon. And now we're just about to complete one on the live elephant trade. So you're in the Tiger Mafia um, documentary, You there is so much investigative work that goes in, sort of tracing all these different routes um, where tigers poached from the wild or tigers bred in captivity and then the market for the for the the animal parts, it must be it, it it must be sort of so demanding and so time consuming to do that work. Yeah, except I mean, it was an interesting part of the world, and it was adventurous kind of traveling. It was new to me. I'd seen a lot of the world, but those areas along the Vietnam Laos border were news to me. Also, some of these special economic zones run by the Chinese. So what I found in China was relatively new to me. And then basically each trip brought new discoveries. Show, I mean, as far as the trade was concerned, you know, the motivation behind the demand, who, who were the people wanting this stuff, for what reasons, and so on. Every time I felt I learned more. And so in this these terms it was very challenging and therefore interesting. So yes, it was about six, seven, eight years. But I don't regret having done it, and it I learned a lot in the process. 
So in all of the work, whether it's whether it's with the bushmeat or the tigers or the or the elephants, you're essentially witnessing or um, investigating and seeing um, aspects of what what I what what I would describe of uh, as as real cruelty as well as as well as illegal acts it must be that must be very very hard to and you have to film it okay I mean I, I you know one does go into a journalistic mode when when one walks into those kind of scenario most of the time you realize this is a one-time opportunity when you really see something on the spot which you need to film then because it will only happen this one time or this person will only talk to you this one time because she or he or she will realize what you're really after and therefore it's not in their interest to keep talking to you. So you tend to have one opportunity. So you have to do things fast and on, you know, on the spot. And uh, that tends to get you into this journalistic mode where you try to get as much out of it so you don't think much beyond that. Of course, when you then lie in bed in the evening, say bloody hell, you know, what I dis what I did film today was pretty horrifying and you know, something has to be done about it. But that comes generally later on. But not when you're in the scene, you kind of, you know, the adrenaline is there and you know you have to get this footage right now and right here. And and you know, so it doesn't give you much time to think about what you're actually seeing. Just for the for the people who will be listening to this or watching this who haven't seen the documentaries or don't know much about these um, the trade in, in in either bushmeat or in in the case of in the case of tigers for um, parts, could you just give an give an idea of what is going on in these in these areas? I mean, obviously, bushmeat is an issue which we can reasonably understand, meaning people have always hunted and lived off wild animal protein, uh, certainly in Africa. Uh, what has changed in the last 30, 40 years, which I have illustrated or tried to illustrate, is mostly how it has been commercialized uh, before it was sustained, subsistence hunting by hunters living in the forest. And nowadays, um, you know, pretty all, pretty much all these forests have been opened up with logging roads by a lot of European logging companies to start off with. Now, some have been, many have been sold to Chinese and to Asian outfits. But anyway, once the forests are opened up, once the lorries start rolling, uh, you know, the, the subsistence hunter can certainly sell stuff into the market by selling it to the driver who hides it on his truck and transports it to next urban center and makes additional money, which flows, of course, back to the hunter. So they no longer just hunt for what they need. They now hunt for the market. And in that context, it got totally out of control in some of the areas like Cameroon, where logging was intensive, or even Congo. And uh, so that's what I tried to document, how it had changed. And basically, that's one of the realities, which I guess is generally accepted now, is an issue. Uh, tigers, yes, I mean, again, I had heard about, it was an accidental getting into the tiger documentary by being offered two tiger cups or being told that two tiger cups were for sale. 
trying to follow up on that and getting much deeper into it all, who might have bought them and the, the tiger farms who were trying to do this commercially. And then getting into real details as far as, for example, uh, seeing jewelry, tiger bone jewelry, which was advertised as being the top end of the market product, which was pink, pinkish in color, then trying to figure out how is it different from the whitish, yellowish, white color jewelry items, necklaces, bangles, and so on, being told uh, by, by a dealer on camera, yes, because the tiger is deboned while it's still alive. I mean, it's sedated, and then it's deboned, so the blood is still in circulation. I don't know if that's actually true scientifically or not, but it's certainly a good story, and buyers would pay extra money for the pink bones over the normal bones on the basis that the tiger had been deboned while it was still alive, so there was more power to it somehow. So anyway, looking into all this, it, as I said, it was challenging, interesting, sometimes shocking, disturbing. Uh, but I felt I wanted to get the story out there and individual viewers like yourself being able to form their own opinion where they stood in all this. And you you personally, I mean, I think you 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 live with some non-human animals as uh, as essentially family members, I suppose. So I and I imagine that that your compassion when you lie in bed at night afterwards for the creatures that you film must be intense. And, you know, could you give us a sense of, you know, your your sort of relationships, your feelings with for um, for, for non-human animals? Because it's not as if you're someone who's who's sort of like filming it without a, a kind of an, an intense personal involvement on your own part. Is that in you know in many scenarios you know you you film and so on and there's no I mean even when it comes to mahout and people riding on elephant you know it's wrong, but there's not you cannot actually see the actual suffering there. The elephant seems to be reasonably okay. He gets fed. He gets medical treatment, veterinary treatment if necessary. And he has to trudge around with tourists for two, three hours a day. So I document that as an abuse, in a sense, of these animals shouldn't be living under these conditions for the rest of their life. But if you have scenarios like Burma, which had 5,000 logging elephants, and then the logging had to stop because there were no longer any trees. So what happens to these 5,000 elephants? They used to earn their keep now. They can't earn their keep anymore. So if there's no tourism or so, then what's their future? Probably none. So you had to look sometimes at both sides. But then every now and then, uh, you know, you, you see scenarios where there's clear suffering and, and clear cruelty involved. And, and that then, you know, gets me to a point where I do feel I almost, almost want to physically intervene, uh, which you generally can't do in those settings. But uh it gets pretty disturbing. I mean, in this latest film, we're going to use footage, which I didn't shoot myself, but commissioned uh, of, you know, a mother being separated from her calf for the training side of it. Oh. The training is pretty rough to break in a young elephant and to separate a, a mother and the calf is extremely distressing. Till I saw this footage, I didn't realize how distressing that actually was. And, and, and that's... You know, that blows your mind on what, what goes on on that level. I mean, the mother, 
the models, you know, pulling on their chains, lying on the ground and, and you know, and the calf screaming and it just mayhem and these guys are ha hammering away at the calf with hooks and the elephant is bleeding and so on. When you see all that, but that's necessary to get them to the point where they perform in tourist settings. So pretty much every elephant which you see in those settings has gone through that at some stage in his life, oh, at a relatively early stage in the life, when they're about three, four years old. So yeah, there can be distressing components to it all. When I was um, studying English literature at university, I became very interested in in the sort of impact of witnessing something. And it seems it it was something that a lot of Renaissance playwrights and maybe even Greek tra um, tragedians were, were were interested in were exploring. I remember in one play by John Ford, there's a character who knows about something bad, and it's it's as if she's kind of punished just for the knowledge that she has. Um, and and of course, there's the scene in King Lear where Gloucester has his eyes put out. And um, and you feel when you're witnessing that thing, it, it, it's there's there's something sort of like very visceral about witnessing, and it's it's almost as if you you kind of want to be blinded in in those moments. Um, it's as though we 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 fear we risk being contaminated by seeing evil in a sense, and. And and so a lot of us, you know, we avoid it. I mean, I know an awful lot of people, and you know, I've not wanted to watch, you know, a lot of things because you know I couldn't bear to watch it, or I didn't want those ideas going around in my head. How do you withstand that um, that very human desire not to be contaminated by seeing what you see? I mean, this one aspect is is curiosity to find out why is it happening, what motivates the person behind it. And there's one example which I keep always talking about. It was in a in a small town in Vietnam, and there was all this screaming from a pig, which I knew was a pig, walked around the corner uh, of the building, and there they were slaughtering the pig. Now, obviously, we all know that pigs go, you know, I mean, when they scream and are being killed, you can imagine there's a lot of screaming and stuff going on. So that was obvious. But what shook, shook me more than that was there were children playing soccer right next to it. And this seemed to be the father who was killing this pig for an upcoming festival. And I said to myself, hey, I, I grew up in Switzerland. If if I had heard this or if I'd seen it, I would have gone up and said, Dad, what the hell are you doing? What's going on here? Is this necessary? I mean, I would have asked that at a very early age. I'm convinced. And I could see these Vietnamese kids couldn't give a damn about what was happening, showed no interest at all. And I started wondering, you know, are we different in some ways? I can't believe that they experienced they didn't live in a slaughterhouse, so they didn't experience this daily. This was for a festival which was upcoming, so it was very irregular that they would witness this. And still, there was hardly a reaction to what was going on in front of them. So, yeah. And the other aspect is that I keep saying, look, this disturbs me. If I document it, if I show it to other people, I hope it disturbs them. If I can take the excuse away from policymakers, from decision makers that I didn't know, because now they know, 
they can't say I didn't know because that goes you know on a lot of times. I remember your your prime minister he uh, he saw a. Uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, he, he talked in Parliament about, uh, this was before he became Prime Minister, about having seen a film on tiger farming somewhere, and that some the UK Parliament should do something about stopping it. This was totally out of the blue, it seemed, but I then wrote him. And I said, you know, uh, yes, there's a hell of a lot of this going on. And we had some communication on this. Uh, so, you know, the feeling is if the British Prime Minister knows about it, discusses it in Parliament, it creates a hell of a lot of awareness about people who potentially have the way to to influence policy making down the line. Yes, yeah, so that's that, that is the sort of important element of getting the getting the sort of knowledge out there and um, I read one article this, that I found on on your website, which was um, the contrast between the world in order and the world in disorder. That a lot of photographers are taking, you know, the beautiful pictures of sunset in the Serengeti and the um, you know silhouettes of the giraffes walking past or something. Um, and this is the idea is that this induces us to love um, the natural world and thereby care for it. And it seems as if you feel that that doesn't go far enough, that you have to show the bad things that are happening to induce the action to, to stop it. So that it's it's an interesting, um, almost alternative view of human psychology. Is it the love that will power us to make changes or is it anger and distress that will power us to make changes? And it seems that you've opted for the latter. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of the world in order type of imagery out there already. I mean, uh, the point is that that's what's sellable. I mean, I started off that way as a photographer. My All my original books were on, you know, beautiful nature, maybe sometimes predator doing their natural thing, but it was nothing cruel or very upsetting. Uh, but I then soon realized that's not the reality. That's that's actually becoming a minor part of the reality. And then you combine that with all the, you know, your Attenborough films and so on, which were all based on showing world in order films. I mean, they were entertaining, uh, not so much educating. And I mean, you know, nowadays he seems to have changed to some yeah. extent and he's bringing out some of what's wrong with this world but the point is it was much easier and still is much easier to sell world in order type of tales and imagery people don't want to be distressed uh, if you're a commissioning editor are you going to buy something like the tiger mafia where you have a chance that people will turn off one third through because they say i don't need this i had enough problems today i don't want to know about more of these issues it's enough and do you want to lose viewership if you're a commissioning editor? Or do you want to show perfect world where everything is happy, where the tigers uh, do their thing in their forests in India and so on? And, you know, it's much easier to sell that stuff. So the, the media is playing a big role in this. So trying to sell what I'm documenting is much harder than selling happy ending stories and, you know, um, world in order stories. But do you think that um, that that 
I mean, I know that the most important thing is changing the minds of the people who have power, but I suppose the people who have power can be influenced by the um, by the sort of reactions of the public, the reactions of voters, polls and so forth. But do you feel that there is um, that within the sort of psychology of the of the sort of culture we have that our aversion um, to dealing with distressing things um and our our preference for the for the sort of pretty the shiny the 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 saccharine makes it a lot harder to um institute the kind of um the the ignition for change you know i think it does i mean if uh, you know quite often people are given a choice they're going to some web page of an ngo and ngos are very good at selling their success stories so if you see something which you find distressing or which you are worried about then you go somewhere on the internet decide what can i do about it and there will be somebody out there telling you send me 20 dollars and i'll try to find a solution i mean i have tackled some of these issues specifically where ngos offered solutions uh, by going then in the field and, and documenting that what they were offering wasn't really a solution that much more was going to be needed before anything was going to be turned into a real solution. So, yeah, there's this escapism, which is very easy nowadays, because as I said, you will always find the alternate viewpoint of the, the party which tells you what you want to hear. There's something on the web which tells you exactly what you feel you should want to hear at this stage, that it wasn't that serious and so on. I mean, I'm from Switzerland. I'm always, you know... I'm always delighted when I know that there's we have this rule of or this system of uh, you know being able to uh, have referendums based on a hundred thousand signatures, which is great stuff because you know. But it goes then sometimes even too far. I mean, the other day there was a referendum on could cows be dehorned. I hadn't even known that in Switzerland dehorning cows was an issue. And why were corns being uh, cows being dehorned? So looking into it, yes, they were injuring each other. Uh, sometimes in their matters, I mean, they were fighting the bulls had these instincts and so on. So by cutting them, there was less injury. And so the Swiss had to vote as a as a country. Do we want to stop the dehorning, or do we want to stop the dehorning of of cows in our matters? And it sailed through. So yes, there's there's a lot of people have not thought about certain things till they're confronted with it, and then they think about it. And I have to think about it. Would would I vote pro or con or what's this all about? So I had to go out and learn, and that's basically what I'm trying to achieve, maybe on a bigger level than just Switzerland, but that people think about some of these issues which they weren't aware about. Um, when I was watching the film Tiger Mafia, you um, you were trying to talk to delegates as a CITES conference, and CITES being the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Um, you were trying to talk to the delegates, and I think you, you got you got pushed out, thrown out of the conference. And um, and there's a shot of you standing outside, and the expression on your face was the was the thing that. As much as anything, I mean, you know, I wanted to find out about your life and the work that you do. But for this podcast, it was that expression that m made me want to interview you. 
because there was there was a look of just I don't know complete dejection in a way and um and I don't know at what stage in the filming or the process that was but you know you've carried on you've you've carried on despite it must feel so hard so pointless so so challenging and I and I I, you you talk about curiosity and the journalistic instinct that leads you to continue, but it must be a psychological struggle to keep going in the face of not being heard, in the face of danger, in the face of all that you see. I mean, in that case, or in the context of CITES, which I've been dealing with a lot and crops up in every documentary I'm doing, because in each documentary, CITES is meant or should be playing a role which it doesn't. So yes, when I see these things and I get to the point and I'm you know kicked out of a conference because I'm asking difficult questions, then the next step is logically, you know, for me anyway, saying, hey, let's face it, these realities exist. If you don't want to take it from me here on this platform, let me bring it to an even bigger platform. I mean, I have gone... I've gone as far as, uh, you know, contact the Swiss Attorney General's office to see if CITES official could be prosecuted in Switzerland for covering up criminal and corrupt acts, which I had the evidence of. So, you know, I, I feel challenged by being pushed away and being told what you have to say we don't believe is not true or is not important or doesn't fit our agenda or whatever. And then I feel, okay, let me see how the rest of the world feels or how other parties feel. And then I go and do push even harder. I I mean, you talk about it as if it's sort of like such a, I mean, it clearly is a natural thing for you to do. But, you know, I'm kind of put off by a bump in the road and think, oh, well, you know, obviously I can't do that. What is it about you that 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 enables this? Look, I don't know what it is. I mean, I said it's Gerechtigkeitssinn is is a German word for it, believing in law. I mean, that law, growing up in Switzerland, going into a, a you know Catholic boarding school must have left something behind it. I just feel, you know, rules are there to be adhered to. And the moment I see injustice, law-breaking, illegalities, I feel, you know, I have an obligation to see what can I do, try to do to rectify it. At the moment, I'm involved in something totally different in having an arbitration against some of the richest people in the world about environmental destruction. My chance of winning is very minimal because they have billions at their disposition, which I don't. And, uh, and you know, so, but I'm, you know, these cases are in court now. I mean, the arbitration is done. I'm in court with them now. And I feel, you know, their behavior of might is right or my way or the highway, I'm not accepting. Uh, and that's basically probably my background growing up the way I did in Switzerland. I, I, I do think I do think it's remarkable. And and. Uh, and you're kind of like that lone ranger the man with the white hat who just can't let the, can't let the injustice 
spread and but it's 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 also notable that this is these are injustices against the environment and against um and against animals um where does why i mean because there are so many injustices law-breaking activities in the world you could have chosen or been attracted to you know any number of causes but these ones these ones it's it's not just about breaking law it's about something that matters to you isn't it no, definitely. I mean, as I said, I mean, animals are close to me because we live with them. The dogs run around here. As I said, I spend every day a few hours with our two orphan chimps, which are part of the family back here. And, uh, you know, so I, I feel, I know about the emotions of animals. I love to spend time with elephants and watch them and interpret their behavior and so on. Of course, there's a lot of human issues here as well. And I quite often intervene in the human component, especially here in Kenya. You you constantly get confronted by human suffering as well. So why is animal suffering? Why should animal suffering be more important? Um, my, my answer would be, look, I mean, there's probably in our little town, there's probably half a dozen or a dozen NGOs dealing with human suffering issues or human issues and there's a few which deal with animal conservation issue and then even much less with animal welfare issue that's kind of and that's where I feel most strongly because as I said I have this daily contact over hours with wildlife with animals I have been I look out here the window not now but most days I can see elephants down there and oh. And so on. So I appreciate what I have and I feel strongly about it. And I feel human suffering and human problems are dealt with by hundreds of NGOs. There is a lot of, you know, awareness of what the problems are on the animal welfare front. There's much, much less out there. And that's what I feel I understand better and can document better and try to create more awareness for that's about it you know in the article that i mentioned the world in order world in disorder one i think steve werner or werner was the the writer and um he wrote um making a regular practice of environmental tragedy can be depressing maybe i'm wrong but i've sensed it wearing on carl he's made a lion-sized commitment and a big difference for one man but it's also made a difference in him in recent years, he's repeated to me that it's time to get a, to take a break and get back to the world in order photography for a while. Even an eco-crusader needs to enjoy the healing powers of nature's remaining beauty. What do you feel about that? I mean, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, one aspect we discussed scientists before there was a conference in Panama last year. It's the first time in, I think, in, in 10 conferences that 30 years that I didn't attend a CITES COP because I felt I've had it, I've tried. You know, I said, people don't want to know. It's corrupt. Uh, there's thousands of people there spending millions of dollars talking theory and, you know, stuff which in practical terms means little. So the first time I decided to stay away from it, but from what you're saying, enjoying the best of what nature has to offer, as I said, I can see it every day. This is a, essentially an intact ecosystem I'm living in. I have photographed on my trail cameras down here up to 30 species. 
in 30 mammals, not just species, but 30 mammals moving past it. So it's an intact system. I enjoy it. It exists. It's possible. It's still possible. I don't know how much longer. But as long as it's there, I get enjoyment out of it. I'm happy to drive down to Samburu into a national park, park among a herd of elephants and just spend two or three hours in the middle of a group which stands in the shade in the middle of the day under a tree. I greatly enjoy it. So yes, that's a nice balance to have. So it, it sounds as if that gives you the the sort of the the psychological the psychological immunization against um against the the, the sort of witnessing the hardships to feel that uh, to feel that intactness that connection that peace but it's then also the contrast knowing that side of it and then seeing the other side of it i mean seeing you know as i said elephants enjoying enjoying freedom running around especially now we have had rains the grass is green they're they're full of energy and spirit and they're out there running around and having a good time and mating and then you know i'm about to fly back out to asia to document as i said the what's happening to elephants when they are performing in circuses and safari parks in china to then see that side of it so it makes it more even more more crass more you know hitting home just to have this side and then be able mm -hmm. to confront see the other side the, the exact opposite of what you hope it should be or what it should be so yes having both sides sometimes makes it more difficult if you only see the beauty or if you only see what the average Chinese sees in a safari park and has never seen the other side he will never be able to have that comparison and that, you know, way of being able to decide for him or herself, is there something wrong with all this? Do you have, um, I mean, I know that, do you, do, do you sort of like talk with your, with your wife? Do you have um, people that you, that you can speak to, to sort of express how you feel about it or is it, or is it something that you deal with your, yourself? Mostly with myself. My wife has come to the conclusion that I'm going too deep into all this for her, you know, taste and uh, that there has to be a limit how far uh, she wants to push this. So in her, you know, yes, we do encounter scenarios. I sometimes take her on trips. We go and look at things together. But overall, she doesn't want to expose herself to some of this. Of course, when I'm out with film crews who are looking for this kind of controversy or this kind of imagery to illustrate certain points, then these discussions do arise with people who have journalistic background, who uh, you know uh, know how to deal with topics like this, how to do their fact checking. Then we get into more detailed discussions on some of this. But yes, it's it's not easy to find parties which are interested to get into depth in this type of discussions. Does it make you lonely? Um, look, this is that there's the internet now, there's books, there's uh, no, I don't really feel lonely. I mean, I'm quite happy at home as a, my wife is pretty much every day in town. There's some shopping or this or that to do. I sometimes don't go into our little town for three weeks at a time because I, I don't really need it, you know. Uh, 
So yes, I mean, human company can be enjoyable, especially on the level where there's common understanding, but just human company for the sake of human company doesn't bring that much for me anymore. Um, moving on to the, that sort of looking at human psychology a little bit more, um, I was really struck in one piece that you'd written. There was the, the contrast between the rhinos and the um, and the bushmeat trade trade with chimpanzees, and um, we didn't we didn't cover that much of the bushmeat trade is 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 monkeys, isn't it? Monkeys and also chimps, I think. There's any you know anything. Any all the primates, all the antelopes, right up to the elephants. I mean, I've lived in parts of Congo where I was served elephant meat every second day. Well, you wrote in the this piece, um, the fact is that when it comes to wildlife conservation, the animals are not the problem, the humans are. Dealing with that with the problem would logically mean dealing with humans. Yes, dealing with humans can be hard work and a real uphill struggle. And most wildlife conservation experts didn't go into this business to deal with the frustration that comes with human interaction. In my opinion, what we need is a new type of con conservationist, one who's interested in humans and human nature. Maybe that means psychologists or even psychiatrists, or I, as I've argued in the past, real eco-missionaries willing to live with the people and work with them on a daily basis, even on a Sunday. So why is it that you feel that conservationists um, really needs those skills of um, psychological training or a psychiatric training to to perform the work that needs to be done because as I said we have reached a stage where we are the problem that is not the animal whatever is left out there should be left the way it is but it is not because of the human population pressure especially in parts like this one like africa where i live so, uh, you know, to deal with the human aspect of it, uh, how can you build, you know, make your boma where you keep your cattle more predator proof so you don't lose cattle, so you don't have to poison the hyenas and the lions and so on. That needs sitting down with humans, with village chiefs and so on, talking for hours, listening to arguments for them. It's often entertainment. And most conservationists, that's not why they went into this. They want to be out in the bush um, doing some scientific work, counting chimp nests or doing some some other, uh, you know, interesting, maybe interesting research uh, and collecting of data. Uh, they want to be out in the wilderness. That's what for them conservation is all about. But in my opinion, conservation is dealing with humans. I mean, I keep telling the story of when I moved to this project in the Congo. Originally, they had, you know, this was one of the strongholds of elephants in the colonial time with some 100,000 elephants living along the CER, the Congo border. When I got there, there were a few thousand left, and now there are probably a few hundred left, if at all. Uh, and I kept saying, you know, we have to do something. Why do you keep butchering these elephants i know you need the meat i know you like the meat you know you now can transport the meat to markets in bangi smoked and so on i know the ivory all goes to khartoum and you get decent money for it and so on but you know within two or three days the village chiefs came to me and said okay you want us to stop hunting elephants i said yes because it's unsustainable what you're doing you're gonna 
pay the price down the line sooner or later, if not you, your son. As they said, okay, but you know, if you want us to protect the elephants, or if you want us to protect your elephants, they have become all my elephants overnight. We want a dispensary. We want a, a new airstrip. We want a new landing jetty for the port, and so on. I said, "Come on, I'm not your government." But it, you know, it became. I mean, these became my elephants, and if I wanted them to put protected, I had to pay. And then you start getting into everyday discussions. You do nothing else. I mean, missionaries do that. I've had good missionary friends in the Congo, and I admired them, American missionaries, for willing to do this all day long, every day. People would show up at their doorsteps with all their problems which needed to be discussed, and they had the time and energy to do all this. And I admired them for it. And I said, if the conservation is that this time and energy and this willingness to interact with the people and explain them why nature and sustainability and wildlife and all that is important for them in the long run, for their children, maybe we would be better off. And that's basically what I tried to say in that piece. I wish we had you know, the, the same mentality in the conservation community as I find with some of the missionaries. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, and it also it also struck me in terms of the and you were mentioning the the reaction of the the children to the um to the to the pig slaughter, and um and you know the difference. It can seem um you know something of a luxury to have the concern for. Um, non-human animals that many of us in the in the West now have, um, it, it can seem to be sort of like to, if someone you know needs the you know needs the meat, then it's it's a different matter from you know going out on a trophy hunt and you know shooting shooting a lion or something. It's 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 that's a very difficult area, but the the absence of any form of empathy or sense of connection does seem to be sort of psychologically interesting um and in in one of the other pieces that was on your website and was it dale peterson who who wrote who wrote it and was talking about um talking about traveling um in um myanmar and he says greed and lawlessness are common enough, but there's also that cold callousness, that strangely hard attitude I note among the animal marketers, those smiling faced purveyors of tiger skins and bear bladders and deer penises, of live snakes and birds and monkeys and dogs, of reptiles and amphibians that has sneaked up on and surprised me. Does it does does that surprise you? Do you think there's something sort of missing when people don't have any care or do you think that this is part of you know it's just economy no i do feel strongly about uh, you know there's something missing i mean have i got the right to say there's something missing i didn't grow up in that environment i didn't get that background i didn't get you know that interaction with uh, i mean i did get all the interaction with our pets and so on so that relationship might not have been there with the people I look at and condemn. I mean, I'm now thinking of an incident only about three, four years ago, just before COVID, where we watched in a town in, in Laos, uh, somebody butchering a few geese and, you know, the knife and then 
cutting the throat and then sticking them upside down in a water bucket and they lived and lived and you could see that you know they were still alive they were not dead they were bleeding out slowly as in suffocating and and you felt like saying why didn't you cut off the whole head or you know put an end to it you know you must see the suffering now going on for minute after minute what doesn't happen up here that you say okay let's at least make it quick and short and over with which you know is something which i think should be fundamentally part of our nature in humanity but it is not there in some of these societies and that's probably what dale was referring to when he saw it mm. and yeah i mean the, the, he goes on he goes on about um to describe a little pangolin in a cage trembling and clinging onto a turtle in 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 his or her fear and um and this clearly frustrated the the owner of the shop who proceeded to poke through the cage bars with a with a broom handle and and dale writes you know as if she wants she intended to kill the creature on the spot and he said that he you know he interacted he was shouting at her and then and then got involved he couldn't he he he, he couldn't hold off and i wonder how you know how hard it is to witness not just the the pain of the animals but that's but that that sort of the response of the humans and and whether those kind of psychological conservationists might be required on that level as well. As I said, I wish there were psychologists out there studying this specific aspect of why certain, I mean, in our, I believe pretty much anybody I know back home or in our societies would react similarly to the way I did to cruelty and suffering while that is definitely not there in certain parts of Asia and certain parts of Africa. I don't know if this has to do with just the survival aspects, that they are just much harder to all this because they can't afford to have this empathy and sympathies uh, because it's everyday survival is more important while we never had to live with that. So I don't know if that's, that's it, but I quite often, uh, you know, buy an animal and let it free again. I mean, if the situation arises, I mean, actually in, in, in places like Burma, they sell you they sell you birds in little cages, which you can specifically buy to free again. So there's a whole industry of uh, going in and buy these things and let them fly again, which I do all the time, but also locals do it. It brings luck or something. So they know it's a good thing to do. But still, it goes on every day that somebody captures them. Probably the same bird is caught again the next day and put it back in the basket again and resold again. So some of that, you know, I have a problem with, but I don't know how to deal with it, how to analyze it, how to interpret it. You know, I'm not close enough to these societies and that I, I fully understand. I'm not cross-cultural in that context, that I fully understand what makes them tick and motivate. So that's a frustrating component in some cases. But yeah, I quite often buy animals and let them go again. If I feel they have a chance in nature, you know, in, the, in their natural environment. I had another question at the tip of my tongue just before, um, just before <laughs> you finished talking, which is now... Um, which has uh, has now um, uh, disappeared. disappeared. Yeah, it has disappeared. But I, 
but I wondered, I mean, also as well as as well as these sort of like challenging um the challenging sort of psychological issues, there's the you you face up to to danger as well in the work that you do, to to you know, actual danger to yourself. I think that's a lot of time exaggerated. I mean, I've done it for long enough now that I kind of know and sense when I push the envelope. And if I get into a scenario where I feel it's getting uncomfortable for them, therefore it's getting uncomfortable for me, I'm filming too much, I'm pushing, asking too many questions, or people start wondering what I'm really doing here and start watching me, then I get the hell out of town. So, you know, I, I've I've learned to 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 deal with that aspect to some extent. So I'm not very concerned about my personal safety. Wildlife trade, wildlife suffering is not is not the criminal activity in you know as drug dealing or arms dealing or human trafficking. So it's not taken that seriously in terms of law enforcement, therefore. You know, wherever you are, it's not that such big issue. Therefore, if you're investigating it and trying to expose it and they realize that's what you might be doing, that doesn't miss you're risking your life as if you exposed drug trafficking, for example. So in that sense, that danger is often exaggerated and I don't feel that's a major issue for me. Um, my my question has has returned, which was about um, we were talking about a, a sort of you know possible lack of empathy, but there's also um, there's also the other psychological motivations for um, certainly for purchasing um, products from from the um, endangered animals. Um, some of them being a perceived medicinal value, and others um, the status um, the the sort of status side of that, and those. I mean, you know, those two, those, those two reasons actually justify an awful lot of purchases of, you know, of of a lot of um, things, a lot of things that realistically we that we really shouldn't be needing to buy. Whether it's the sort of like, you know, the latest of a particular brand of phone or a new car or whatever it is, the fact that these consumer decisions also impact um, endangered animals is is to a certain extent not the point the point is this kind of human irrationality of buying something to make us feel better or when there's no sort of scientific evidence for a for a particular cure just through belief or faith and for the status side of it that we almost don't care about the cost so long as it benefits our ego and those aspects of 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 human psychology are particularly destructive in the area that you work in as well as more generally it seems yeah, i mean you know it is it is true in i mean even in the bushmeat context uh you know uh, bushmeat is a status product in the towns meaning it costs more i've done this specific study of comparing prices of gorilla meat versus cow meat of a chimpanzee herd head cut off versus a pig's head cut off and shown that the wildlife products are generally a lot more expensive by the time they reach urban centers. And at that stage, the people who are buying it know it's illegal what they're doing it, but it's just part of 
their status culturally to offer wildlife products to your husband in the evening or friends which come for dinner or whatever is part of the status and that's why you prefer to pay a higher price. There might be a taste component to it as well, but a lot of time it is status. You go to government banquets and you find bushmeat being served in big quantities. So on that front, it exists, for example, in Africa, in Central Africa, not so much here in East Africa. But then you go to Southeast Asia, and it's even more pronounced in terms of the end products being, as I said, all the tiger bone jewelry. With rhino horn, the world still believes it's all about medicinal. It's not. It's now all about status as well. I mean, this... Uh, you know, the, the tiger bone, uh, sorry, the, the rhino horn powder is being sniffed like cocaine at, at parties and so on. Uh, but the, the end product is mostly jewelry again for sale. Uh, you know, a libation cup or an arm bangle of rhino horn per gram is probably 50 times more expensive than the shavings which fall on the floor, which are used for the medicinal component. So the jewelry product is 50 times more valuable per gram than the byproduct, which is the, the medicinal stuff, which falls on the floor. And, uh, you know, then they're even talking there in that context about the reverse stigma syndrome, meaning you, you reach a stage in, in, in status where you want to illustrate that you're above the law, you want to have illegal products, you want to have a rhino horn sitting on your desk when your visitors walk in to illustrate that you're above the law, that you're very wealthy, that you have it all, that you don't bother about enforcement activities, and that's part of the status. And, you know, that is very worrisome as far as I'm concerned, because you see it in, in China and in Southeast Asia, Vietnam is not very different. You see it everywhere. And so uh, do you, uh, what do you feel that, you know, what is your hope now for how your work can um, ch can change the way that we, all of us, think, feel, act, and respond towards the, the problems that you're documenting? Okay, I mean, you know, as I said, when it comes to animal welfare, we talked about it before, this empathy and so on. I don't know if I ever going to change anything in, in societies in Southeast Asia or in Africa or whatever, for reasons we discussed. So I don't have that much hope. In terms of the wildlife trade in general, I thought the new window had opened with this, you know, with the recent uh, epidemic, COVID, whereby we hand link it closely to put to potential wildlife trade, or I mean, cross species transmissions or noses scenario like previous uh, such uh, pandemics. So you know, the world has to start paying attention to that. So if we ship tons of pangolin scales or even live pangolins from Africa to Asia. Uh, there's something, you know, there's a risk with all that uh, when we capture the things here. But then the other day I was in a in a market in, in Long Prabang in Laos and they were selling, you know, freshly caught, still alive, but some dead uh, uh, horseshoe bats. 
Now the horseshoe bats are on the front line of this cross-species transmission uh, business. And everybody knows that COVID might have started with bats when it went to, from the caves in the Yunnan province to the Wuhan lab and so on. And they're only a few hundred kilometers away. You can buy them in the market uh, for dinner. And you say to yourself, okay, if it hasn't sunk in here, will it ever sink in anywhere? If that message hasn't come across, if the authorities haven't said, okay, for, for the time being, no more bushmeat in the markets, certainly no more bats or whatever. If that's not happening, then where is the hopes? But as I said to me, it's still, I know that the American government has allocated big chunks of new money to, for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to try to understand the international trade in, in bushmeat because it's a national security issue now. COVID has illustrated that it can become very quickly a national security issue that we need to elevate it to de- on that level. And as such, there's suddenly big money, there's suddenly more players, there's suddenly more departments involved in it. So maybe there's some hope there. That's the only thing I can hope for. (laughs) (laughs) And yet you still carry on. (laughs) Yeah, I said, the elephant film, and then I don't know. Maybe I do giraffes next. They also have a rotten deal. Do they? I didn't know giraffes had a rotten deal. No, it's now, you know, the exports are huge. I mean, uh, I was the other day in a, it's called Safari World outside Bangkok. They now have... 220 giraffes, uh, you know, which is more than you will ever see on any safari in any national park. And they're all in this relatively small outdoor area, of course, but it's all about these feeding platforms. Every zoo safari park has now a huge feeding platform and all these people have to buy their carrots to feed these giraffes. And everybody has his picture taken with, there's your head, there's the giraffe head, there's your carrot, the giraffe tongue comes out and grabs your carrot, and that's the great selfie picture which goes on every Instagram accounts. And there are hundreds, thousands of people lining up for these images. And every zoo, every safari park knows it and that it's big money. And therefore, giraffes get exported now by the hundreds from South Africa mostly uh, for these, you know, these shows. I mean, I mean, it's only for this selfish stuff, uh, which it's, and, you know, that's not their natural life. I didn't see a young baby. I didn't see a youngster. So there's no breeding going on. So it's not a natural life cycles in this safari park. It's, it's poor show and it's, it's all about money. And there's something wrong with that. And again, the world doesn't know anything about it. No, there's something wrong with us that we can overlook, <laughs> overlook the, you know, the, anything well i suppose people just don't know about giraffes so why would they know that that's not natural for a giraffe uh, I, yeah it's it's like a whole it's like a whole re-education program required for <laughs> required for the world to change anything is there is there um anything that you feel that that we haven't covered which we'd really like to address no, I think, I mean, I have said a lot of where I stand, how I feel that, you know, I'm not too hopeful about where it's all going. Uh, the the one aspect here in Africa, it's very pronounced is, I mean, you know, Kenya has now over 40 million people. When I came, 
it had about 12 million. So, you know, it's a huge increase in my lifetime. It shows up wherever you go. I mean, this little town I'm living in, there's a lot more people. There's a, more, a lot more people living off the land as well. I mean, there's a lot of urbanization going on as well. But yes, this human population pressure is unsustainable as far as nature and wildlife is concerned. Uh, we are supposed, according to UN, having 160 million people by the end of this century, from 40 million now, 45 million. And I don't see any hope, not for the forest out here, not for the wildlife, not with 160 million people. So when are we going to address that component? Either they're all going to stand at the Mediterranean, jumping on boats to come to, to Britain and everywhere else, or... This is not going to be sufficient out here for these all these humans wanting to live to live a good life and the ever better life. People want cars now. They all have motorbikes here already. Before it was bicycles. When I came here, people walked. Then it was bicycles. Now it's motorbikes and then it's cars. And we can't live, you know, fifty million people in this country uh, with that kind of consumption level. And certainly, you know, uh, and certainly nature can't, you know, deal with us having that level of consumption. So once nature goes, we go. I, I remember when I first came across you, it was in the book Poached and um, and your your um, your words to the writer were, um, I'll only talk to you if you don't try and sugar me up and make me sound as if I'm I've got a happy ending to my story or something like that. And and we've we've certainly ended on on that tone of not point. a happy ending. Yeah, so you were forewarned. So. I was well, I you know, I I have the I have the same um I I have the same I have the same depressing outlook. Um, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for being a guest on Shrink Rep Radio. Thanks for having me. A remarkable man. Maybe I should have asked him more about Muhammad Ali. One point I must make is that, for example, in my small country, the UK, we, or rather the earliest inhabitants of these islands, wiped out the large herbivores thousands of years ago. The bears, many hundreds of years ago, and the wolves and lynxes, a few hundred years ago. And what's more, there is still cruelty, by which I mean here illegal cruelty, badger baiting, hair coursing, fox hunting and dog fighting. They might be fringe activities, but there are still people in this westernised, industrialised culture without any compassion or care for animals. In all the developed countries, many species were hunted to extinction before we started considering animals being endangered species. And there was often considerable cruelty in the process. The history of wolf extirpation in the USA being a prime example. And of course, across the world, there remains cruelty to and abuse of children, women and members of different minority groups. There are no perfect societies. But, as Karl Amann shows... There are also individuals willing to devote their lives, their reputations and their mental equilibrium to combating such wrongs when the law enforcers fail to do their part. In answer to my question, how do you do it? I felt that Carl gave these answers. 
Partly, it seems, it comes from being Swiss and wanting to expose lawbreakers. Partly from a journalistic veil in the moment when he's focused on getting the story and getting the footage. Partly, his ability rests on his curiosity, his desire to understand how people can do these things and get away with it. Partly because when he goes home, he spends time with animals having good lives and sees that there is still beauty in the world. And partly it's due to his sense that he could not, once he had the knowledge, do nothing. A short time before, I'd heard another activist talking about his work to combat animal exploitation. The two men humbled me, and I began to wonder if what I lack is less the psychological strength to do what they do, but some kind of moral backbone. Maybe that's my failing. And what I'm asking you now is, isn't that also a failing of my psychological health? I mean, can a person be truly psychologically healthy without possessing the unerring commitment to stand up and fight for their beliefs? Anyway, I hope you found this somewhat unconventional offering interesting and enlightening. Hello, Dr. Dave and listeners of Shrink Wrap Radio. This is Paul Krauss. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Tempe, Arizona. I decided to subscribe to donating $5 a month to Shrink Wrap Radio podcast. I like to take my friends out for coffee about once a month, and so I thought, uh, why not take Dr. Dave out to coffee once a month? We've been spending so much time together uh, via the podcast that I just wanted to show my appreciation. So I would encourage you all to think about it next time you're at a coffee shop. If you spend somewhere around $5, why not give Dr. Dave a $5 endorsement every month? Thank you, Paul Krause, licensed counselor in Tempe, Arizona, for sharing your excellent idea of donating to Shrinkwrap Radio the cost of a cup of coffee. I can tell you a commitment to $5 a month will definitely help keep the lights on here. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. At the end of the last show, I said I was going to skip a week. Then I remembered I had one in the can, so to speak. My London associate, Isabella Clark, had sent me the files for an incredible interview she had conducted with Swiss wildlife crusader and activist Carl Amann. That's the one you just listened to. I like the way she brought out the psychological dimensions to his work. I thought this was one of the best ever of Izzy's interviews. I'm proud to be able to offer them under the shrink wrap label. I think she adds tremendous value. Please let us know your feelings. Be sure to look at the links Izzy provided in Amund's bio. One of the links will take you to the preview for the Tiger Mafia documentary they discuss. Thanks so much to Issy and Carl for their tremendous collaboration and offering. It looks like I really don't have a guest next week, so we'll have to skip a week. But the week after that, I do have someone very special lined up. But I'll let that be a surprise. Until then... This is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth.
You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.